This is Ingredient Insiders. I'm John Magazzino. And I'm Andrea Parkins. During each episode of Ingredient Insiders, we invite some of the best chefs in the world, noted food writers, to come in and talk to us about a specific ingredient, how they're using it in the kitchen, why they love it. A lot of times these items are pantry staples for these chefs and they can't go without them. We'll then be talking to food producers, artisan food makers, farmers about those specific ingredients, how they're produced, where they're made, what makes them unique and why chefs love them. Andrea, I cannot believe it. We got 12 episodes in the can, as they say. We've completed season one and we've been renewed for season two of Ingredient Insiders. I really can't believe it. I, You know, a conversation during COVID has led to this podcast. And I think it's really kind of showcasing what we do as specialty food purveyors. The thing that we wanted to really bring together was connecting food producers to chefs to our listeners. Yeah, I mean, these chefs are good friends. You know, it's a lot of people we've known for a very long time. A lot of them are famous food writers as well that are, you know, not professional chefs, but they do a lot of cooking and they've written about food. And, you know, we've got these intimate relationships with them and with these food makers, which gives us a unique perspective to share with the listener. Absolutely. I think, you know, we've been selling some of these ingredients for over 30 years. I think a lot of people, they see food in a grocery store and it's in a box, it's in a jar, it's in a bag, and they don't really have the understanding as to where they're coming from, how they're sourced. We're shedding light on that information that people don't have. I think one thing that this show does, it gives you a little bit of insight into the specific attributes of a product and really how it's made and and what its uses are. Myself and you have traveled around the globe to see where a lot of these ingredients are made and to try and bring that knowledge back. You've got a great job. The best job. I sell the best ingredients to the best chefs in New York City. I feel honored to, to do what I do every day. I'm jealous personally of your job, Truffle Dog. The journeys that you have been on, the people and the relationships that you've been able to establish is one of a kind. Well, yeah, I'm very lucky. I'm very grateful to meet some of the greatest food makers making, you know, whether it's olive oil or cheeses or caviar. I get to go to the source, find these products, bring them back to the United States, or if they're made in the U.S., bring them back to the kitchens of, you know, these chefs who've now at this point become close friends and say, what do you think of this ingredient? What do you think of this product? And, you know, is this something you would use in your restaurant? One of the reasons that the podcast came to be was we were not able to get face to face with the food makers and with the chefs during COVID. So we knew that by starting the podcast, having these conversations, that we could accomplish the same thing almost as visiting a food producer, taking the listener almost on a journey to that food producer just by having the conversations with them. On this episode of Ingredient Insiders, we're going to be talking about lemons. I know lemons may not sound that exciting or interesting, but they are kind of a one of those like foundational products. I love lemons. I think they bring brightness. They bring acid. I think of summer. Our guest on this episode is Ruth Reichel. My mother said that when I was a baby, they would find me in my crib sucking on lemons. She's obviously the incredible food writer, former critic for the New York Times, the LA Times, 
editor yeah. of Gourmet Magazine. Winner of multiple James Beard Awards. I mean, she's got every accolade in the book. When I was in culinary school, I was kind of the weirdo that didn't want to be a chef. I wanted to get into food writing and food styling. So for me, this is, you know, going to be such a treat. The first time I met Ruth was about... I want to say almost 10 years ago, I was invited to dinner with her at Moneta Tavern in New York City. I was really nervous. I brought a really nice bottle of wine. I remember it specifically. It was 1981 Chateau Trottenois in Magnum that I'd bought just a few minutes before the dinner at a wine shop in Tribeca. And after that dinner, everything went well and it was smooth. And, you know, I tried not to say anything stupid to embarrass myself. I got a phone call the next day from a friend who worked with Ruth and said, Ruth said that was the best bottle of wine she's ever had in her life. Wow. Yeah. That's huge. I don't know if that was really true, but I was amazed. Yeah. Ruth Reichel, when you get into like looking at her career, she grew up in New York City. She ended up in California, you know, Northern California in the early 70s when the kind of food revolution was happening out there. She's, you know, besties with Alice Waters. Then she got a job as a food critic. She worked, you know, at uh, the Los Angeles Times for a period. And then she got the job as the chief food critic for the New York Times, which is a huge deal. She took that role so seriously. She actually used to get dressed up in disguises, Andrea, to go into a restaurant because... People would recognize her otherwise. If you read some of her books where she kind of tells the tales of her life as a food critic, it's incredible and... Very cool. And when you learn about some of those disguises, it, it's it's actually really funny. Well, we're really excited to talk to Ruth about lemons. We're also going to be talking to Rolando from Manicoretti, great importers of Italian products. So Rolando is one of the pioneers of specialty foods in America. When he started Manicoretti, I believe in like the early 90s, you know, he was one of the first people to bring things to the country. Uh, you know, great example, he's going to talk today about lemon agramata, which is this incredible olive oil that is flavored with lemons. The lemons are crushed together with the olives while the oil is made, and it just makes this heavenly condiment that can be used in a variety of ways. This is not something that you would cook with. You will have it at your dinner table. You can have your waiters go out and drizzle it at the table. It's a perfect seasoning. You know, these are products that we kind of take for granted today. This was the person who brought them to the U.S. You know, there's so many sayings about lemons, Andrea, like, you know. Like a car being a lemon. Exactly. All right, ready for this one? I'm ready. I I want you to finish my thought. I'm ready. Okay. When life hands you lemons... Make limoncello. Oh, you read my mind. (laughs) I thought you were going to say lemonade. No, it's always limoncello for me. This episode is in partnership with the Chef's Warehouse and produced by Hey Now Media. All right, so Andrea, culinary royalty in the house today. I am fangirling for sure right now. Are you? Are you nervous? A little. (laughs) I mean, you should be because Ruth Reichel, editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, from 1999 to 2009. Food critic for New York Times and the LA Times. I guess starting in 84 through 90... 93 at the LA Times uh-huh. and then till 99 at the New York Times. Amazing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Multiple books, working on a novel. James Beard Awards. Memoir, six James Beard Awards. 
but who's counting. Yeah. And here she is today with us. And and you know what this means? It just means I'm old. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> and nope. I've been writing about food for more than 50 years. In an amazing Beautiful. way. Yeah. And we're here to talk about, you know, we asked you what you wanted to talk about and you said? Lemons. Lemons. You know, I wrote my first cookbook when I was 21 and I had an entire chapter on lemons. It's like one of these things that you know, I went into a publisher and said, I want to write a cookbook. And, you know, today people would say, who's testing your recipes? Where do they come from? Who were you to write a cookbook? You know, in 1971, they went, oh, what an interesting idea. A cookbook by a young person. Sure. <laughs> and then, you know, what do you want to do? And I said, well, you know, I want to do a chapter on each of the seasons. And then I want to do chapters on things that I love most. So there's a chapter on lemons. Why do you love lemons so much? I always have. My mother said that when I was a baby, they would find me in my crib sucking on lemons. Wow. Funny. And, you know, and they would tell, will tell you at all of the test cooks at Gourmet would tell you that every time they would give me something to taste, the first thing I would say is it needs more <laughs> lemon. <laughs> what does the lemon do to the food? It just brightens everything up. And there's almost nothing lemon doesn't taste good with. I remember once um, Maggie Ruggiero, who was one of my favorite cooks there, was doing meatballs, Italian meatballs. And I said, Maggie, try putting a little lemon peel in there. And you know, she came to me and said, oh, my God, that was such a great idea. And I said, well, you know, it's obvious. Lemon is better in everything. It's just that acidity just adds, and as you said, it brightens up those dishes. I had it on pizza yesterday, actually. It was a white pizza. Oh. And it was phenomenal. At the very end, you just got the brightness from the from the lemon, and it was beautiful. It was and, good. And it's also, you know, it has these magical properties. Like, um, one of the things I've always hated about panna cotta is, you know, it's made with gelatin, so it gets really firm. You can make... A panna cotta. Now, I have, I have argued with Nancy Silverton about this. Yeah. Nancy says, Ruth, that's not a panna cotta. And I go, well, wait a minute. You cook the cream, you add some sugar, and then you add some lemon, and that's all you need. The lemon coagulates it enough so you get yeah. this wonderful texture that just melts when you put it in your mouth. And that's all it is. Like that more is creamy kind of than... That is magical. Yeah. It's because it, you don't need... There's no gelatin. There's no gelatin. It, it's just, and you know, it's, so Nancy and I had this huge argument when we were <laughs> in Italy. We were driving through Tuscany and she's talking about panna cotta and I'm saying, well, you know, I just think it's horrible to use gelatin and you just need lemon. And Nancy says, no, that's a posset. So if anybody ever wonders what's going on in the intimate conversations <laughs> driving through the countryside of Italy between two of the most, you know, masterful yep. minds of culinary <laughs> people, they're talking about what's a panna cotta. Panna cotta. <laughs> exactly. That's hilarious. It's awesome. One of the things that I read about lemons that you wrote was this amazing story that is in Come For Me With Apples about Danny Kay and his pasta al limone. Yes. And I have so many questions about that. Okay. First of all, Danny Kay, the most amazing chef ever. You know, I mean, he was really a genius. I mean, he decided to learn how to conduct music, and then he did. Um, you know, he went and conducted the Philharmonic. And when he had surgery, he decided to learn how to do surgery. And We're, We have a very young audience. I'm old. Uh, Andrea, do you even know who Danny Kay is? I had to look we it need, up. I'm not need, going to lie. We need Ruth to tell us who is Danny, who was and is Danny Kay. Danny Kay was an actor who I would suggest that 
everybody who listens to this, Google Danny Kay and Louis Armstrong and listen to their version of When the Saints Go Marching In. I mean, he was a wonderful singer. He was in White Christmas. He played Hans Christian Andersen. That's how I knew him when I was a little girl. And we Thumbelina, Thumbelina. <laughs> that, was, that was Danny Kay. Hollywood legend. A real Hollywood legend. And I got to know him when I first became a restaurant critic at the Los Angeles Times. He called me up and said, I love your reviews. I want to meet you. Come over for dinner. Unbelievable. And, um, you know, that's one of the great things about being a restaurant critic. I met so many amazing people just by having them call me. I mean, at the New York Times, Mike Nichols called me one day and said, why don't you take me out to dinner? Awesome. I, yeah. We became friends, you know. So Danny invited me over to dinner and he had built himself this kitchen that was like a stage. He never sat down at the table with you. He cooked and then he would bring the food to the table. And he was pretty famous for Chinese food because he really learned to cook Chinese food really well. But the first meal he gave me was this lemon pasta. The thing that was so amazing about it was he made his own pasta and it was so thin that in this sauce, which was really nothing but cream and lemon and a little bit of lemon peel, the pasta seemed to almost dissolve in it. And, you know, he cooked it and brought it to the table. So you were eating it like a second off the stove. And, you know, he said, that's really important. You know, I, I can't mix this up and sit down and serve it with you because in 10 minutes, it's not the same. It was amazing. And then from there, I have to say, I put his recipe in my book, but I like a lemonier sauce. So I make one that's just a lot of lemon juice, lemon peel, and butter without the cream. So it, it's just, you know, lemon. Even though lemons typically in North America are in season in the winter months, to me, that is like the essence of a summer pasta is just that butter and mm -hmm. lemon juice. I mean, that's the thing about lemon is like you don't need much. When I go and like rent an Airbnb somewhere and have to cook for a few days, the first thing I buy are lemons. I will not be in a house that doesn't have lemons. Lemons are always in your home pantry. They're a staple always. in your pantry? Absolutely. And, and and then, you know, I never waste the peels. Um, I make simple syrup. Out, I mean, you know, you make great lemonade by just, you know, taking the peels and making sure you don't get any of the pith because the pith is bitter. But if if you make a simple syrup and infuse the peels in it, you get this beautiful color. And then anytime you want lemonade, just put it in the refrigerator. And anytime you want lemonade, you squeeze a lemon, put in a little bit of simple syrup and some water, and you have the best drink you could ever have. As we're having this conversation, I'm wondering how that expression where they call like a car a lemon, like a yeah. bad, poorly made car, because lemons are amazing. I think because they're and so sour. Is that, that what it is? I think. It, so I think it's the same thing. I have to tell you, this, this is not going to be popular. Yeah. <laughs> I really don't like Meyer lemons. Part of it is because, you know, they crossed a lemon with a tangerine yeah. to take some of the sourness out. Why wouldn't you want the sourness? You yeah. Know? I mean, like celebrate me, the sourness. They're not as yeah. fun. But Americans don't like sour things. So, you know. Uh, I love sour things. I think also a lemon is something that 
is pretty easy to find. I mean, we take for granted a lot of things because we have all these mm -hmm. amazing markets in the United States. But lemon is, let's just say it's pretty readily available year round. The quality even of the supermarket grade is usually pretty good. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering though, Ruth, when you go to a, you know, a beautiful farmer's market in Northern California or LA or wherever, are there varietals of lemons that you're looking for? In Italy, I love getting, you know, the lemons from Capri or from Sicily. The Sorrento yeah, lemons. The Sorrento yeah. lemons, yeah. Those um, are special. I really like using organic lemons because um, the stuff that they put on those supermarket lemons, I mean, it's everything from oil-based things to pesticides. I mean, there's all kinds of nasty stuff on it. And uh, really, you don't want to waste your lemon peels, you know. So buy organic lemons. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and the thing about California is that just about everybody I knew in LA, I did not have a lemon tree, but almost everybody I knew had, you know, lemons dropping off the trees. So you don't really even need to go to a farmer's market. Right. Just go over just to, go your, to your backyard and just and, grab yeah. a couple. And, I wish uh, we had that here. Uh, really? I mean, that's one of the things when people talk about eating seasonally yeah. and locally, mm -hmm. I'm not sure I could live without lemons. <laughs> How do you feel about lemoncello? It's too sweet. Too sweet? It's way too sweet for me. That's what I think I about agree. with like the lemon peels is, you know, making lemoncello. Yeah. I love, I love adding zest to anything. I never added to meatballs though, but um, no. I'm going to try oh, now. Wait. Yeah, it just, you'll see. It yeah. just brightens it up. When I Googled your name in lemon, <laughs> literally <laughs> when I did that, the recipes that the lemon tart, that was like. I love that lemon tart and I make it all the time. I have some in my refrigerator right now. And one of my favorite soups, the lemon soup. Oh, that, yeah, that Greek lemon soup. Avgo okay. lemon. Uh, I can't say it. Avgo lemon. Avgo lemon. I said it. Perfect. Perfect. Yes, I, I here made I made a list of lemon oh, dishes I love that I so love. So prepared. And um, the lemon uh, panna cotta is there. Lemon meringue pie, a pain to make. After college, we moved back to New York. We were living on the Lower East Side, dirt poor. And this restaurant called Food started up. It was like before there was even really a Soho. A bunch of artists moved in there and I baked pies for them. This is in the 1970s. This is 1971, probably, 70 or 71. I lived on Rivington Street, so it was a ways over. And my husband built me this kind of like milk pail thing, you know, this yoke with shelves on it. So I would walk down the street with carrying my pies <laughs> like on my You were shoulder. like a Sherpa. I was like <laughs> a Sherpa. Sherpa. <laughs> and I made them lemon meringue pies were one of the things that I made them. Wait, so you would deliver the pies to food? I would deliver the pie. I mean, I made, there were a few things I made. One was Rigo Jansi, chocolate Hungarian cake. It's layers of ganache and chocolate cake. And the other thing was lemon meringue pie. And then I made a couple of other different, like an apple pie. I just remember the lemon meringue pies, getting the meringue not to weep, trying to make that on a hot, I mean, this is, you know, we didn't have air conditioning in our loft. I mean, and then know. walking it through and Manhattan. Manhattan. Ruth, where did you learn to make the lemon meringue pies? I learned to cook, you know, as... as All self-taught? Yeah. Well, I mean, I was lucky because I knew people who were cooks. But, you know, I mean, I was a little girl who, you know, because my, my mother was the scariest cook on the face of the earth, I decided when I was about six that it would be better if I cooked than letting her cook because... You know, as you probably remember in my first book, the first 
story in the book is about my mother inviting people over and putting 26 of them in the hospital with food poisoning. You know, and to avoid food poisoning, I thought I would cook. My mother sometimes had household help who it was sporadic, but, you know, sometimes they would, I mean, a wonderful woman named Mrs. Peavy who taught me to cook. And my Aunt Bertie had a housekeeper named Alice who was an incredible cook and who taught me to cook. But I also just, you know, read cookbooks. And I mean, the great thing about learning to cook when you're a child is that everybody encourages you. Everybody thinks it's adorable when you cook when you're seven, right? And, and so, you were just trying to keep people safe. Yeah, I, alive. Yes, yes. I was just <laughs> trying sick. to protect the guests. <laughs> and so, you know, when you get encouraged, you keep cooking. And I, I have always liked cooking. I mean, it's, I'm not a great cook. I just am someone who loves cooking. You know, I, I find being in the kitchen the most natural place. I mean, I genuinely believe that what makes us human is that we cook. You know, we cook, animals don't. And I think it's our natural activity. It's my safe place. So, and you were a professional eater. I mean, not you weren't doing the Nathan's hot dog eating contest, but as a food critic, did you love doing that? Did you love eating every night? I know I was friends with Frank Bruni. It, that's always kind of a conflict that it's, it, it's a lot. I really loved it. I think for lots of reasons. I mean, my, my, you know, I grew up in New York City. I had older parents. We ate out a lot when I was a kid. My mother had this true love for restaurants. My mother was enthralled with Joe Baum. So we went to all the Baum restaurants, you know. She watched the opening of the Four Seasons. And we couldn't afford to go there, but we would go and have a drink. And then we would go to the Automat for dinner. And my father's office was um, above a restaurant called the Dubonnet. And we probably ate there at least once a week the whole time I was growing up. We had a waiter who would take me into the kitchen just to give my parents some, you know, free time. And he would, you know, introduce me to spices and then they would test me on spices. I've always loved restaurants. And my mother had this idea of restaurants as theater and this notion that you could become anyone you wanted when you were there. And I've always felt that way, that restaurants are kind of magic lands. You know, and then I was really poor. You know, I, you know, got married and we had no money. I was living in a commune in Berkeley. And so the idea that I got to go out to eat on someone else's money, it never got over the privilege of that. And also, you know, being the restaurant critic of the New York Times, it sounds like a really glamorous job. I mean, the truth is, I didn't make much money. I mean, I spent probably three times as much on eating out as I as my salary was. I still love going to restaurants. I mean, I love to cook, but I also love to find out what being in that restaurant is going to be like. Do you feel that restaurants today are as glamorous, as incredible? I think the time period that you were at the New York Times, 1993 to 99, right. to me, seemed to be the golden age of restaurants. And I say that because I think expense accounts for Wall Streeters were probably at their all-time high. Mm -hmm. Lincoln Town Cars packed outside the restaurants. It was not that it's easy to get reservations today, but to me, there was an energy going on during those years that doesn't quite exist today. I don't know if you feel the same way. Uh, well, I do, but I mean, I have to say, I, I feel like I was really lucky because I was in... Berkeley in the 70s when, you know, California cuisine, I mean, you know, Alice Waters, it was all starting. And then I moved to Los Angeles for the 80s. 
in the 80s in Los Angeles was an incredible time for, you know, Wolfgang Puck and everything was happening there. And then right at the point that I moved to New York, it was like all the, the big restaurant energy moved to New York. And, you know, one of the things that happened there, I mean, Danielle once said to me, um, you know, the great thing about New York is we have an opportunity here that no other city has. He says, you know, I, the Japanese come in at six, the Americans come in at eight, and the Spaniards come in at 1030. So I get to turn the tables three times. He said, there's no other city in America where that happens. That's a great observation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. America at that point was transitioning from the food world was very small until the 90s when suddenly, I mean, I, partly because of, you know, the food TV Food Network starts up in 93 and suddenly food becomes part of popular culture in a way it had never been before. Chefs become very cool. Being a chef had been blue collar work. Kitchens were horrible. Suddenly, everybody wants to be a chef. The people who were chefs in the 70s and 80s who were educated, their parents were horrified. You know, I mean, Jonathan Waxman's parent, what, you have a graduate degree? I mean, you think about... Yeah, it was like going to vocational school back then. Right. Suddenly, in the 90s, being a chef was cool. Parents weren't tearing out their hair with, that their kids wanted to be chefs. And, and you had also a real change. People like Wolfgang Puck and Danielle Boulou proved that you could become rich being a chef, which had never happened before. The, the money had gone to the front of the house, right? To the Joe Baums, the, the Sirio Maccioni's, the people who were running the restaurants. Suddenly, the chefs, you know, the Jean Georges, they're making the money. So in the 90s, when I was the restaurant critic, I mean, I was just so lucky to be there then. It was an incredible time. You're in the right place at the right time. I mean, and that you bring up that Berkeley in the 70s, which I, you know, again, if I had the time machine, there are certain places I would love to go back to. And I think Northern California in that late 60s, early 70s, -hmm. magic. Really magic time. And ingredients changed so much. You know, ingredients in America in the 60s, terrible. The great chef in L.A. in the early years, the chef at L'Hermitage, Bertrand came. He said to someone, America is a beautiful country, but when it comes to ingredients, forget it. If you wanted cheese, you had to get it from Europe. I mean, nobody was making cheese here. I mean, Laurie Chanel started making goat cheese, first goat cheese in America, 1979. Hard to think about what ingredients were like until the 70s and suddenly there is this push to let's grow great ingredients here. Right. And you look at Andre Soltner's cookbook and he talks about if you want chanterelles, you probably have to use canned chanterelles, which is unthinkable. Right. And that is a great subject. We have to have you back on for another episode of this because there's so much to talk about. What has gone on with American artisan cheeses, even with just basic produce items that didn't exist in the U.S. where people brought seeds from Europe Mm -hmm. and you know, now the U.S. is firing on all cylinders, yeah. I think. No, I mean, I actually think right now you can probably eat better in the U.S. than any place else in the world. I mean, because we our products are so good. All right, talk to us about some more of your favorite lemon. you got a big list. Oh, so, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about, one of the dishes, you know, like salmonier or a veal with lemon and capers, one of the things that I really like to do is take off all the peel and section the 
lemons into little pieces. And then rather than putting lemon juice into the sauce, put in like some chicken stock and maybe a little white wine and then cook the lemon in the sauce with mm-hmm. butter. It thickens it and it you get the flavor. Not enough people use lemons that way. I like, like that. Like supreming them? Yeah. Pith, pith removed. Pith removed. Just And just these beautiful just, segments. Just lemon sections, yeah. And I also, I haven't made this in a long time, and I was thinking I should have made it before I came here and talked about it. But in my first cookbook, you know, I did when I was 21, there's a very old recipe, which I call Everpucker Pie. You take a pie, you make a two-crust pie, peel all the pith and, and everything off of lemons, and you slice them, and you put it in the pie crust with flour and butter and water and cook it that way. In the crust? In the crust. Wow. Whole slices of lemon. So you get that intense lemon flavor in there. I remember loving it, but for one reason or another, I haven't made it in probably 40 years. I mean, I think one of the things that we don't do enough is use whole lemons. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, I throw lemons, just slice them up and throw them when I'm roasting like a duck, right? Just to have that aroma as it's cooking, and then, you know, you take it out, cooked in all that duck fat. Mm -hmm. It's delicious. And then the other recipe I want to talk about is Lori Colwyn's lemon rice pudding. Mm. Do you know that? I mean, it's actually something she borrowed from Jane Gregson. It's a little bit of rice and a fair amount of cream and a lot of lemon peel and a little bit of sugar, and you mix it up and put it in a slow oven for a couple of hours. And it's really wonderful. What happens to the lemon peel is it sort of gets very soft Mm -hmm. in the oven. And it's not, it's like a a rice pudding that isn't sweet. Is it like use a peeler? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you just, you know. Mm. I love rice pudding. Um, this is like, this is like, not like a rice pudding you've had. This is a rice pudding you can eat for breakfast. Okay. Is there sugar? There's a tiny bit of sugar. Okay. It's like a quarter cup of rice and I think two cups of cream and maybe three or four tablespoons of sugar. It's wonderful. Yeah. It does sound like breakfast. Like I can picture eating it like on a cold day or something. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's not custard. I mean, yeah. but most rice pudding is, is mm-hmm. you know, like there's the famous uh, rice pudding from La Mijon. Is, I've had it. It's wonderful. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a meal in itself. Yes. And it's, you know, it's got sweetened condensed milk in it. And it it's, it's, you know, as I'm listening to all these stories, is there anything that lemon doesn't go well with? Because it really is just so universal. Sweet, savory beverages. Oh, right. I mean, I can't think of anything. It's not, I mean, beverages. We haven't even talked we didn't about even beverages. Get that. Yeah. But to me, the best drink on earth is really good bourbon with a little bit of lemon peel in it. And we're saying how universal lemons are. Another kind of thing that I use lemons for in my house, not eating, but when I have to clean my, I have a very nice booze block cutting board. Mm-hmm. And I love to just pour kosher salt on it and then take a couple of lemons and just rub them and the juice mm-hmm. all over the cutting board. It's a, you know, a better way to clean maybe. And not to mention it's it's the best way to clean copper. I mean, I will never forget going to Crete and walking into this courtyard and all these women were there with salt. They had their copper pots out, salt and lemons. And I did not know that. Oh yeah, no, it's it, it really works well. Um, you know, most of the things that we use now to clean our, our kitchens with are vaguely poisonous. Um, 
Oh, toxic. And, and a lot of them have fake lemon, yeah, lemon scent scented. to them. If you think about like lemon pledge. Ple- yeah. Or whatever yeah. kind of dishwasher detergent mm-hmm. with this fake lemon. And of course, you know, there's all the vitamin C. I mean, mm-hmm. lem- lemons are good for you. I, I, I keep feeling like if we make food medicine, it turns people off. And I don't want to turn anyone right. off from eating anything. But if you're sick, I mean, me personally, I'm making tea. And I am squeezing a half a lemon in that tea. Like, yeah, there's a lot of uh, antibacterial properties to lemons. Mm-hmm. That acidity kind of kills a lot of things. So lemons are clearly a pantry staple at your household. What else is in the Ruth Reichel pantry? Um, well, I have to say they've changed during yeah. COVID. I mean, in normal times, it would be a few different kinds of olive oil and about 20 different kinds of vinegar. I mean, I have a lot of different vinegars. Well, I like sour, right? Yep. So mm-hmm. um, a lot of different flavor profiles. I always have anchovies, really good anchovies. Um, that's another pantry staple that if you have anchovies in your cupboard, you've got dinner. I guess I mean, we don't my... need to ask her the question, John. Yeah, normally at every episode of the show, Andrea will ask you... Do you like anchovies? Oh, do I like anchovies? (laughs) We love them, but we feel like initially, so John wanted to name the podcast The Anchovy, and we thought it might be a little polarizing because you either love them or you hate them. But now we found out that every single person who's ever been in the studio loves anchovies. Well, you know, see, I think that people hate anchovies because they haven't had good ones. Right. I mean, I like the ones from Cantabria. I think they're the best anchovies in the world, and they're hugely expensive. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're really they're expensive. Like the, white, the Dombo Carte brand the is like the white truffle of anchovies. Um, and and they're, you know, they're about $2 a filet. You must have friends over at Dombo Carte because I think they're like $10 yeah. a filet. <laughs> they're so delicious. We talked about this before. They're incredible. They're meaty and delicious. Well, see, I and, buy the huge can. Yeah. There's a huge can. It's like a pound. Got it. I always have them because for me, you know, if you don't know what else to eat, a piece of bread, toasted or not, with cold butter on it and an anchovy on top, Perfect. There is nothing better on the Simple face of the earth. Simple and delicious. Andrea, the holidays are coming up. Now you know what to get me. A one pound tin of anchovies. Big, you got to try. The big one. <laughs> <laughs> but it's got to be the uh, Dombo right. Carte. Okay. <laughs> Um, yes, no, I, I'm totally with you. I mean, yeah. I, I, if you opened my refrigerator right now, you would see the big one and then you would see some little, because I actually think the quality is slightly better in the smaller tins. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. So we got lemons, we got anchovies, vinegars, uh, oil. Okay. So... Um, during COVID, what I missed most was Asian food. In the sticks where I live, there aren't any Asian restaurants. And so I started buying all kinds of Asian soy sauces. So I now have about 15 different kinds of soy sauces, you know, from Japan, from Korea, from China, from, you know, various regions. I have sesame oils. I have three different kinds of, I have a perilla oil. I have really good uh, Szechuan peppers that I keep Mm. in the freezer. I have all different kinds of other peppers, Asian pastes, which make cooking Asian food. Like chili paste, like gochujang and things like like that? Yes, and, Mm -hmm. and dubinjang and all of that. I have admitted this before. I'm a condiment slut. 
Yeah. So my refrigerator is, I've got, you know, 20 different kinds of hot sauce, mm. barbecue sauces. If you have a good pantry, you never have to worry about what you're going to have for dinner. Another thing I would always have is bacon. Yum. You know, yeah. if you have bacon and eggs and, and Parmesan, really good Parmesan cheese. Yeah. Talking, going back about the Chinese, I know uh, both Andrea and I follow your Instagram. The Chinese food that you were making during COVID yeah. looked incredible. You have kind of a, this, a very big affinity for Asian I, cuisine. I, I do. I mean, you know, I'm one of those people whose palate goes salty rather than sweet. Mm -hmm. And that sort of means that, you know, my bent is for Asian foods because, yeah. you know, their profile is mostly on the salt. First time I ever had Thai food. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was... It was the 70s, and I thought my head would explode. I had never imagined those flavors before. You know, the fish sauce. Oh, another red boat fish sauce. A, another staple in, in my pantry. Mine too. Yeah. I discovered yeah. that during COVID. And sriracha. Is that your go-to hot sauce? No, I have lots of... But but for Thai food, you do want... You know, if I, we we have Thai noodles a lot at my house, and you kind of need sriracha yeah. for that. I put it on my scrambled eggs in the morning. I love yeah. it. I used to do that, but I'm I've moved. I feel like I've moved past that now. I don't know why. Mm -hmm. I started off like with a, you know as a kid, like I like ketchup on my eggs. I still then do I would that. Go to like Tabasco, and then I went to like sriracha. And, and now, now, and now it's just white truffles. Shaving my truffles. <laughs> 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 I noticed you didn't bring any white no. truffles. <laughs> this is not a good year for white truffles, unfortunately. One of my favorite combinations in Asian food, or particularly Japanese, because you mentioned soy sauce, I love to combine soy, butter, and lemon to bring back mm -hmm. that lemon I, it's so funny because I did an interview. I mean, this is a million years ago, but I, I was doing an interview with Jean-Georges, and he said, the best sauce in the world, butter and soy sauce. Yeah. And, um, you know, I took that home with me and use it a lot because, you know, when you don't know what else to do, butter and soy sauce. I yeah. mean, lemon is a nice addition, but you don't even need the You don't lemon. need it, yeah. but I, I throw a little lemon in there too. Butter's in the pantry for sure. Oh, butter. I mean, this is one of those olive oil or butter. I am definitely a butter person and it has to be cultured butter and sweet butter. I mean, I, yeah. you can add salt if you want. Amazing. Well, this has been an amazing conversation. Ruth, can't thank you enough for coming by to see us. Thank you. The stories. We could talk for hours here. I want to do an episode now with soy sauce. Thank you so much. We really appreciate this it. This was awesome. This was really fun. Thanks. This episode is sponsored by Manicoretti, great importers of Italian products. So Andrea, I am super excited today. We've got not just an incredible food maker here and a taste maker, but he's a friend. He's worked with the Chef's Warehouse for, I don't even know, 20 plus years at this point. And he's really just such a personality in the food industry. We are so excited to have Rolando Baramendi, the founder of Manicoretti Foods here today. Manicoretti is uh, an, an importer and they import some of the finest Italian ingredients to the Chef's Warehouse house items like rusticella de abruzzo pasta agramata oils volpaia vinegars yeah There's pretty much if you have been to any kind of high quality specialty food store in the united states the products that are on those shelves there's a good chance that many of them were discovered by Rolando, imported into the United States, and then found their ways onto the, the shelves of the store. And then for the home cook, 
you don't see them in the restaurant kitchens, mm -hmm. but these are staple items by some of the best Italian restaurants. Now, there's other products that you're importing, and, you know, Ruth wanted to talk about lemons, and immediately I thought of the lemon agramata. How, do you, how is that made? Well, or what this is, is, it? This is a product that actually Gianluigi Peduzzi from Rusticella introduced us to, and immediately I went to Abruzzo to see how it was made. It's made by the Ricci family, not far away from the Rusticella pasta factory. It's in another town called Lanciano. And the tradition in that part of Abruzzo is at the end of the harvest, what they do is they start throwing lemons with the last batch of olives sort of like they feel that it's like a cleansing ceremony of sorts. So then the olive oil that comes out of the machine, it has this incredible sort of mechanical infusion of the lemon essence. It's not an additional flavoring. You're not putting lemon zest or essences into this. It's an actual crushing of olives and lemons and putting that whole juice into the process as you would an extra virgin olive oil. So when I tasted it, I was blown away because it was so delicious. And I said, this is going to be amazing and people are going to love it because it is a perfect condiment. This is not something that you would cook with. You will have it at your dinner table. You can have your waiters go out and drizzle it at the table. It's a perfect seasoning. So uh, lemon agrumato is really an infusion of olive oil and lemons crushed together. I love it to finish okay. seafood dishes. I'll even do a, a salad where instead of lemon juice um, and olive oil, I'll use just that. Do you ever use it with pasta? I do. And it's delicious to drizzle over uh, linguine with clams or yeah. any kind of shellfish. It's delicious also to drizzle it as a finishing oil on dishes that most likely you wouldn't want to put parmigiano so it's either a sprinkle of parsley and also or like they do in sicily with the bread toast and breadcrumbs yeah and agrumato so a little pepperoncini too pepperoncino okay. too would be great i love crudo so i i eat a lot of um, one of my favorite things is to slice very thin um, beautiful scallops and then put them on a rock salt a himalayan rock salt slab and in a nanosecond, put them there, drizzle some agrumato, and then eat them. So the simplicity of your cooking is something that I think stands out. Talk to us about some of the simple recipes that you create with lemons. Well, with lemons, the thing that I like so much is a recipe that I learned a long time ago in the Cinque Terre, that it was a friend of mine put in the blender an entire untreated lemon put it at high speed and made it into all a paste with the seeds, the skin, everything. And then slowly started to add heavy whipping cream into it. And everybody said, oh, that's going to curdle. Yeah. But it made a beautiful sort of like thick cream. lemon sauce. Lemon sauce that then it was tossed with fettuccine. Wow. <laughs> Do you strain it? Is it served? No, because the whole thing is just pulverized. It's like a cream. But you don't you don't heat the sauce. You just like toss it in the hot pasta. And then when you we'll put it in a bowl in a serving bowl, and then we'll throw the fettuccine, hot fettuccine, with some some of the cooking water in it. You know, we're not drained all the way. And then we'll drizzle chopped parsley, or we can even put some agrumato. It'll be delicious. Wow. And Rolando, you're an amazing cook. I've been lucky to have a, a meal prepared by you in the past, and you know you've written a beautiful cookbook called Authentico. 
What are some of the other dishes you love to do with lemons? I like very much to, um, to how do you say, use lemon in things that they tend to go outside of the, the repertoire of Italian food. But such as in, you know, tagines or sure. um, one of the recipes that I wanted to include in the, in the cookbook, but I, it was very difficult to narrow it down, is another recipe that I do with uh, spaghetti. And then what I do is I take an entire lemon, like before, but cut it in quarters and then slice in irregular, not perfectly, you know, like chefs do. Yeah. But perfect. I do it in cut, very rustic uh, cut. Rustic mm -hmm. cut and put uh, quite a bit of, you know, like olio verde and then put the lemons and very softly cook them with the skin, seeds and everything until they get almost caramelized. And then what I do is I toss the spaghetti in that and then add cubes of fresh tuna and wow. some olives and capers, if you wish, as well. And just Fantastic. toss it all together. Sounds delicious. And serve that as a dish during the winter time. That's something we didn't really talk about, though. Italy has some of the most unique and amazing lemons. In the United States, you think of lemons, you kind of think of like Florida or California. Yeah, the Eureka lemon is like the common... Yeah. Yeah. But when I think about Italy and I think about Sorrento or the Amalfi Coast, yeah. you have some incredible lemons there, which not they, just the juice, the zest and the skin. And yeah. And many of them are, you know, edible, just raw, the whole slice, sliced very thin and some sprinkle of salt and, and olive oil. And they serve you that as a and that's something like eat, cedro, yeah. right? But if you look at the label on the agrumato that's basically a reproduction of a painting that has all the different varieties of lemons growing in italy it's very different you know i think every region has their pride and joy and so sicily has their ideas about lemon then you get to the campagna or every region and makes different things with the lemon but that's the beauty of italy that's what we're going to keep traveling and tasting. There's other types of agramato that you're making as well, right? They're making as well the blood orange, which is fantastic, especially now for Thanksgiving. That would be amazing on pumpkin, anything pumpkin oh, yeah. or squash. Uh, also sweet potatoes are delicious, baked sweet potatoes or yams of any kind. Yeah. It's wonderful on roasted duck breast as well as oh, salmon. Yeah. Salmon is fantastic with blood orange. Rolando, how did you start Manicoretti? What was the catalyst for that? After graduating from college in 1987, I graduated with a degree in agricultural economics. That winter, I went to ski in the Italian Alps. A friend of a friend of mine showed up in the house we were all staying with a basket full of ingredients, these wonderful unfiltered olive oil from southern Tuscany, pasta from Abruzzo, bagna cauda, and a strange pesto made with arugula, which nobody knew arugula was at that time, even in California, sold in the sort of like in the spice section you right. know, of the co-op. So I was very intrigued by all these products because I'd never seen them before. I've always been the one cooking for all my friends. And so I decided to make a meal with what I found in this incredible basket. And everybody was, you know, so happy the rest of the week. So by the end of the week, they asked me, why don't you help us find a distributor or an importer for our products in the U.S.? And we'll help you out. 
I said, well, that's interesting because I think, you know, food is such a great way to connect people. I incorporated Mainikariti on the 14th of April, 1989. What I did is I took some pictures of the products in my kitchen. I sent a little roll of film to be developed. What I put together is what today you would consider a PowerPoint presentation. I took sheets of white paper. Yeah, and back in the old days, they called the it a slideshow. It was a sli before a slideshow. I glued the, the, the pictures and with my typewriter that I went through college. I typed, you know, what what the products were. Yeah. And I put together a price list. I made an appointment with many of the importers and distributors around the Bay Area. Everybody threw me out. Everybody said really? these products are too esoteric. They're very strange. I'd never heard of this before. Wow. What is this? What were the products? Well, they were all the products of Rusticella da Bruzzo, the pasta. At that time, it was coming in a one kilo bag without even a window. So nobody could see what it was. So people were just used to Ronzoni or whatever the, the basic, Barilla was the basic the pastas. Commanding. Yes. Yep. And remember, at that time in the late 80s, early 90s, Italian food was in the ethnic food aisle. Yep. It was a section of the aisle. Yep. So next to the Mexicans and the Japanese and the Chinese, right? Asian food was all lumped in one. I think that a lot of people take for granted what we have today. Uh, because if you go back 10, 15 years ago, balsamic vinegar which we all see 30 different balsamics in the supermarket today, you couldn't find that, period. If you would have to go to a very specialized store mm -hmm. in New York, somewhere like Balducci's or Dean and DeLuca, yep. and find one or two. Same with high-quality olive oil, same with pasta. So you really were the catalyst for bringing these products to America you know, like a pioneer and starting to, yes, really starting to put it on the shelves. Well, I think what happened is I just happened to be, like they say, at the right time, at the right place. I was in the epicenter of what then became the food revolution. Yeah. And I think it's very fortunate that you will be talking as well with Ruth Reichel yep. because she is the pioneer of that revolution. Sure. What was very interesting for me being in San Francisco during that time is that the products were embraced by American chefs, not by the Italian right. chefs. The Italian chefs would, you know, immediately dismiss everything. This is not from my area. This is not from my neighborhood. This is not what I'm used to. And instead, people like Alice Waters, Nancy Silverton, Mark Miller, you know, Joyce Goldstein included, and and many of these American chefs, they were looking at Europe for inspiration. They were looking at Europe for higher quality because they were all coming to Italy and France and Spain and they could taste those products, but then they couldn't find them over here. Manicaretti became sort of like a bridge to those artisan products that people couldn't find. But I give full credit to the Californians and the American chefs for making Manicaretti a great success. Yeah. Uh, talk to us about Rusticella di Bruzzo. And Andrea mentioned it earlier. It's, if you don't know what it is, it's an incredible pasta. 
It's made in Abruzzo, no surprise. The company was founded by Gianluigi and Stefania Paduzzi. What makes that pasta so special? Well, uh, Rustichella has been making pasta since 1926. So it's uh, Nicolina Peduzzi's father who had a mill in Abruzzo, and then they were making pasta for the people in the in the area. Rustichella, as we know it today, was sort of like taken to the next level by Stefania and Gianluigi, uh, brother and sister. It was very difficult to make people understand uh, what the pasta was all about. The only way that I could convince them that there was a serious difference was by cooking for them, putting it in people's mouth. I think that's still the biggest challenge that I have after 32 years almost now, that the only way for people to understand the difference in the quality of an ingredient is you got to feed them. Yeah. They got to taste mm-hmm. it. I mean, Andrea and I have a similar job, which is mm-hmm. going out, visiting chefs at restaurants, which you've done for 30 plus years and, you know, bringing them ingredients. You know, a lot of folks have said to, you know, Andrea and, and myself, like, Hey, you guys are great salespeople. How do you do it? What's your secret? And I've always said, I don't do anything. I go to a restaurant. I bring them food that I think is really great. Mm-hmm. ingredients. I say, here, cook this and try it. Taste it. Because there's no fooling anybody once they taste it. Yeah. It's either you like this quality, you understand it, you know, your restaurant, it, it fits your menu mm-hmm. ideas. To your point, once you taste the rusticella pasta, you can't compare it to a Barilla or a DiCecco at all. And I remember being at their facility and what I thought was really cool, they sat us down. There was three individual pieces of spaghetti sitting in front of us. One Barilla, one DiCecco, and one Rusticella. And we each got a magnifying glass light and we looked at each one individually to see the differences. You could see the texture on the rusticella versus the the barilla, which is what holds the sauce to the pasta. It was just the quality was so much better. And you're only paying a little bit more. I, I don't know why people don't invest in. Well, the biggest challenge that I had at the very beginning, it was besides the price point, the quality of the semolina is very important. You have to use the best quality semolina, which has the highest protein content. And at that time, it was all the pasta coming from Italy had to be enriched with, you know, folic acid and all these different things, because the quality of the flour itself was really not good enough. So it didn't meet the standards that needed to be sold in the United States. We were the first ones to bring pasta that it was not enriched. And it was very, I had some serious, you know, maneuvering to do with the FDA and customs at that time. So, you know, I got inspected constantly, but the protein uh, content was so high that it managed to just get labeled. Because of the high quality of the semolina? Yeah, and as you can see, it says Italian durum wheat macaroni now. That way I could circumvent that uh, labeling issue. Then the next one is the texture, right? Like you said, it's extruded through bronze dyes instead of Teflon-coated dyes like the industry does. The surface of the pasta has a wonderful roughness. Very, It's almost like sandpaper. Did you, you can hardly, you know, rub your fingers on it. So the sauce will adhere beautifully the drying process. It's very important that the pasta dries slowly in temperature-controlled cabins so that in those 56 hours, you develop an incredible taste, whereas most of the industrial pasta is flashed through hot temperatures so that it can go 
directly into the package in five minutes. It is like an artisan bread. I think that that's what I love so much about it is the bite, is the flavor, is the texture. And I think, truthfully, the portion, everybody says, oh, you need six ounces of, you know, or eight ounces, the portion of my spaghetti for my dishes. If you put six ounces in your dish, you'll be satisfied. The problem is that, you know, People tend to overput pasta. We only eat pasta as a first course in Italy. Portion control needs to be addressed when using uh, rusticella because a little bit less is more. And I always advocate you want to make people hungry and want to come back again to have some more. Absolutely. Yeah, and today Rusticella d'Abruzzo pasta, as an example of one of your products, is the number one selling pasta at the Chef's Warehouse. Yep. Partnering with amazing people like yourself, I think, made us who we are today. We certainly have a, a number of brands, but again, the quality speaks for itself. The level of clientele that we're selling to, they are willing to pay a few bucks more to have the super quality of Rusticella. As always, I think that just like my food producers in Italy, all 40 of them, they've sort of made me the person I am and they made the company that we have. The relationship with Chef's Warehouse and Manicariti has also nurtured these great chefs across the country and made us be partners in the true sense of the word. So I look forward, as always, to what else we can bring to the table and share more beautiful things uh, with all your clients, which makes my life keep going. Awesome. Well, it's been such a pleasure having you, Rolando. I always learn every time Rolando speaks, I learn something new. Yeah, and go out and buy this cookbook, accessible recipes and absolutely delicious food. So thank you for being here with us. And thank follow you. him on Instagram, yeah. Authentico underscore cookbook. I hope you're all hungrier. That's my, <laughs> my goal. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Ingredient Insiders, Where Chefs Talk. Like what you hear? Write us a review and follow us on Instagram, at Ingredient Insiders. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.